Well, if you could turn into your Bibles to Acts chapter uh, 13 is where we're going to kind of be on this morning. Uh, I don't know if, if you remember or not, but last time I preached, I guess it was about two months ago, uh, we covered actually Acts 9 and Paul's conversion. So in a, I guess in a weird way, you could call this part two. Uh, but even if you didn't hear part one, uh, it, you'll be fine. So, uh, But really is a continuation a little bit of what we talked about last time uh, a couple months ago. Uh, I think, again, we all, um, I think we all love a good underdog story, uh, whether it's in sports or maybe just even something from world history. Uh, there is something about a team or an individual fighting against the odds, you know, persevering through heavy persecution or opposition in order to gain, you know, like an unlikely victory. Now, you can look at a lot of different places to find stories of like, you know, un, unrelenting perseverance, but there is one story that I've always found uh, not just fascinating, but really incredible. It involves a Medal of Honor recipient from World War II. Uh, he was an army medic by the name of Desmond Doss. Now, Desmond Doss, he's actually from Lynchburg, Virginia, so a fellow Virginian, uh, but he was a professing believer, but to make a long story short, or really a long story less long. Uh, Desmond Doss was what's called a conscientious objector um, for religious reasons of World War II, uh, and it was specifically to deal with taking life. Now, as a result, he still enlisted uh, in the military uh, in World War II, but he, he uh, pursued the position of a field medic uh, and was actually placed in a rifle company. In his own words, Doss, Doss stated that his role in the war uh, was to save life instead of taking it. Now, again, kind of summarizing a lot of events, but the army actually attempted to get him to quit because he refused to carry a weapon, uh, politely, but he refused to carry a weapon because of the religious reasons uh, from his perspective. Uh, and even as his fellow soldiers and commanding officers constantly mocked him and made fun of him in training. Uh, they beat him physically, um, often on a daily basis, and they actually would um, throw boots and other things at him at night when he would kneel by his bedside to pray. Now, fast forward a couple of months, and this exact same company's uh, deployment was in the Pacific against the Japanese. Uh, and Doss, along with these same exact soldiers and commanding officers, they were sent to Okinawa on what would become one of the bloodiest and most intense battles on the Pacific front. Now, despite not carrying a weapon at all, Doss, Desmond Doss, in just over 12 hours within the same battle, saved the lives of 75 American soldiers. And I note many of them were the exact same soldiers that had mocked and beaten him over the last several months. Each of those men would, obviously, <laughs> go on to praise his, his heroic efforts and to thank him again, uh, but they celebrated with him as well when he received the Medal of Honor from President Truman. Now, I think we all love stories like that, you know, to hear somebody who persevered, not just in his faith, but persevered to, to save other men and other soldiers. And I kind of put it this way, it kind of gets your blood pumping. I don't know what it is about that, but it makes you want to go do something. I don't know, run or whatever. Um, but I want to take that feeling, that kind of like, ah, and shift your focus to Acts chapter 13. In a similar way, often in, the, in Scripture, we find people who have maybe what we would call a resilient or a perseverant or persistent faith for Christ. 
And of course, we see this in Christ himself. We'll, we'll actually talk about that this morning a little bit. Um, but really, when you look at Paul, that's certainly a characteristic that defines him. Now, what we're looking at this morning in Acts 13 is what I'm really calling a defining point in Paul's life and ministry. When you look at the idea of, we're just going to call it a steadfast faith, we relate that with Paul, especially as you study his life and his work in the early church era. Um, As we find and described as passages like 1 Corinthians 4, in Paul's lifetime, he was threatened, attacked, beaten, arrested, abused, shipwrecked, abandoned, isolated, and even stoned at one point. Now, all that being said, Paul was known, even in the early church, as someone who was willing to hazard his own life for the glory of Jesus Christ. We actually find that in Acts 15, verse 26. Paul was, uh, I guess you could say, the poster child of perseverance for Jesus Christ, and even today is often noted for his unrelenting faithfulness to God and the gospel. I want to circle back, though, to this idea of perseverance for Christ, or we're going to call it steadfast faith this morning. You cannot study the life of Paul without noting his incredible resilience against difficulty and never compromising his passion for the gospel or his passion for God's kingdom. Now, I do realize, again, that there are other men that carried this testimony as well, but our focal point this morning is going to be Paul. Uh, Now, this is the question that we're actually going to ask, and we're going to, as we work through Acts 13, we're going to answer it this morning. Uh, So this is kind of the critical question. We'll circle back to it in the conclusion. But how, how was Paul able to be so steadfast for Christ in the face of heavy opposition and persecution? How was Paul able to be so steadfast for Christ in the face of heavy opposition and persecution? By working through this question, we're also, of course, going to answer how we can have, in our lives, steadfast faith as well. I do want to warn you a little bit, though, ahead of of time. Um, The answer is both very simple, but also extremely difficult. Um, Just to summarize kind of two points, uh, to have steadfast faith, it demands, first, salvation is step one, faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, But then it simply demands of us a constant hunger for God's word and a consistent passion for God's glory, a constant hunger for God's word, and a consistent passion for God's glory. As a result, the Holy Spirit works in us to be filled with joy and drive, as Carrie read at the end of Acts 13, to be able to move from one opportunity to glorify God to the next without, without ever uh, missing a beat. It's simple, again, because it's pretty straightforward. Salvation, repentance for Jesus Christ, there's a relationship there, of course, that fellowship that we have in him. But then from there, it's basically that hunger and thirst for the truth of God's word, to know it and to understand it, and to be passionate for God's glory and the work in this world. It's a process that starts at salvation, but it grows as we grow as image bearers of Jesus Christ. Now, I told you simple, but what's the difficulty? The difficulty comes in how easily we can all be distracted from dedicating the time and energy that it takes to truly develop a hunger for God's word and really how naturally we desire to build our own kingdom instead of pursuing the expansion of God's kingdom. But again, as we'll come back to dedicating yourself to the pursuit of biblical perseverance, and this is critical, dedicating yourself to the pursuit of biblical perseverance is actually just dedicating yourself to the pursuit of God himself. 
willfully surrendering the authority over your entire life to him and his perfect and infallible will uh, and word. So, all of that to say, let's step into Acts chapter 13, and we're going to answer that question about how was Paul able to be enabled by the Holy Spirit to be so steadfast in his faith. So just to give a little bit of context, uh, again, chapter 13, we're calling, talking about these like defining moments, you know, in Paul's life and ministry. So just to kind of give a little bit of context working up to Acts chapter 13, remember that we're first introduced to Paul in Acts chapter 7 and 8, where he's a part of Stephen's martyrdom. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But Paul is there, and from there, uh, for a time, he's the tip of the spear of Christian persecution, Fast forward about a year to Acts 9, and uh, Paul, while traveling to Damascus to kind of stamp out some Christian that, Christians there, uh, he's confronted by Christ and he's converted. Over the next three years, Paul travels between Damascus and Arabia. We find that in Galatians 1, 17 and 18, and he's being discipled by a man named Ananias. Now, after three years, Paul escapes Damascus because of a plot to end his life. He goes to Jerusalem, where obviously there's understandable hesitancy in uh, accepting him because of his history there uh, of persecuting Christians. Uh, But then, of course, we're introduced to Barnabas for the first time. Barnabas takes Paul before uh, the apostles, and they confirm basically this genuine faith in Christ that produced a transformation. Again, Paul starts preaching in Jerusalem, but his former allies, the Pharisees, are uh, ticked, just to say the least. Uh, And so they also plan to try to kill him. Now, as a result, remember that the apostles smuggle Paul out of Jerusalem and send him north where he travels around Syria and Cilicia for about a decade, eight to 10 years. uh, And that's in Galatians 1.21. So then you go to Acts 11. He's recruited to go work in Antioch with Barnabas again for a few years. uh, And then from there, uh, that's kind of where we pick up in Acts 13. So a lot of this time frame, I just mentioned it as far as, Christ, as far as Paul and his ministry, the time frames and the locations that he's in. We get all of that from Galatians 1 and 2 and portions of Acts like 9 and 15. So that timeline all comes directly from Scripture. Now, so all that to say, he's in Antioch, he's serving in the church there, and now we're finally at Acts 13. So look at Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Now, there were in the, in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manane, uh, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, "'Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them.'" And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. Cyprus is the Mediterranean island over there. Uh, And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. That's John Mark was with them. So Paul and Barnabas, they're in Antioch. The Holy Spirit works, moves, and calls them to this first missionary journey. So Paul and Barnabas leave, and they take uh, John Mark with them, and they are on the island of Cyprus uh, for a couple of months until they move to the region of Galatia. Now, I just touch on this um, because obviously it's there. Um, uh, If you look at verses 
Uh, actually, look at verses 13 to 15. Uh, so now when Paul and his, compa- his company loosed from Paphos, they travel ac- across the island and they, travel, uh, they uh, take a boat to Paphos. Uh, they came to Perga and Pamphylia and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and, when, uh, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them to Paul and Barnabas, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So Paul and Barnabas are on Cyprus for probably a couple of months, and then they travel over to kind of the mainland. And uh, in this area is actually where John Mark leaves them. Uh, Now, again, unfortunately, we find that for some unclarified reason, so there's no real reason given, John Mark actually abandons Paul and Barnabas in Perga, and he heads home to Jerusalem. Again, I just pointed out, because Scripture does not give any indication of specific reasons of John Mark's departure, it really is fruitless and unnecessary to hypothesize about why he left. The only thing that we can conclude is that it wasn't a good or legitimate reason, since when you read later on in Acts 15, Paul really doesn't think it's a good idea to bring uh, him along on the second missionary journey. Um, now, I kind of mentioned this little uh, advertisement. Uh, we're actually talking about that passage in our adult Bible fellowships next Sunday. So if you're interested about that, see you next week, 9.15 a.m. Uh, but I just pointed out um, more so for this reason, uh, the only real reason that I'm bothered by John Mark's leaving is because he messed up, uh, you know, like peanut butter and jelly, PB&J. You have Paul, P, Barnabas, B, John Mark, J. PB&J, it would have been like the greatest missionary journey ever uh, and arguably the greatest sandwich ever. Uh, John Mark ruined that, so I'm a little bit bothered by that. Um, But other than that, uh, we don't know why. So that's just my own personal, you know, whatever. comedic relief, I guess. Uh, But PB&J, he messed, John Marks messed that up by leaving. Uh, And so anyways, Paul and Barnabas now, this is important, that has a reason. Uh, Now it's just Paul and Barnabas, just P and B, uh, moving into the area of Galatia, uh, which is uh, obviously it's specified Pisidian Antioch. And they go into a synagogue there and they're given an invitation to speak, which for Paul, this is just like the perfect opportunity. It's exactly what you want. So Paul stands up and he preaches a sermon at, in the synagogue. Uh, so let's actually, we're just going to look at this quickly. Look at verse uh, chapter 13, verses 16 to 23. So Paul, then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, men of Israel and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of forty years suffered he their manner, uh, their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that he gave unto them judges by the space of forty or four hundred and fifty years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, the son of Kis, uh, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, 
to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all, mine, uh, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. So, in the first part of Paul's sermon, he summarizes Israel's early history, basically from Abraham all the way to Egypt. And then he jumps to King David. He touches on, he, he actually touches on the Pentateuch. He references the conquest from the book of Joshua. Uh, and he also touches on the events that are covered in the book of Judges. But he traces all of this to the establishment of King David, whose lineage leads to the Messiah. Jesus Christ. So he more or less just summarized the clarity in which the entire Old Testament points to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So that first part of the sermon is absolutely critical because he just told a group of Jews, I want you to understand the entire Old Testament points to the Messiah, clearly Jesus Christ. Uh, This is another clear indication in Scripture that the Jews didn't have any excuse to not be ready for Jesus Christ. And I kind of put this in there because Kenny actually referenced this point as well last week when he was talking about Anna. Uh, You have this beautiful representation of, uh, of course, what Kenny described as this magnificent and godly woman where she was a student of Scripture, she was ready for Christ, and she shared that with people in the temple. But it was because, again, of this connection of her knowledge of Scripture. Paul is clearly identifying the fact that the Old Testament was very clear about who Jesus was and why he was coming. Uh, So that's the first part of his sermon. Then he goes on to give testimony of, uh, he talks about John the Baptist's ministry, which is directly connected, of course, to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So we're going to pick up now, look at verses 27 through 28. For they that dwell at Jerusalem uh, and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher." So uh, the Jews condemned and rejected Jesus Christ. Again, this is reference to passages in the gospel accounts that we know. Uh, And because, Paul says, they didn't truly understand the Old Testament. Uh, And again, you look at the gospels and you look at Jesus' ministry, you look at his interactions with the Pharisees, and how many times do you hear him say, you know, have you not heard, Uh, have you not read? Have you not seen this in Scripture? Haven't you heard this taught? Uh, And you look at verse 27, and even Paul points out, he basically says, you guys read this stuff every Sabbath day, and you still missed it. Uh, And again, they sadly, as it says, fulfilled Old Testament prophecies and and didn't even realize it. Now, this is an important chunk. Look at verses 30. Uh, We're going to kind of skip around it from 30 to 41. I'll let you know where I'm at. Uh, But starting in verse 30, but God hath raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now look at verse uh, 37. But he, Jesus, whom God raised again, saw no corruption. 
Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest thou come upon you, which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wander and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. So Paul explains that the law, or we'll put it this way, our obedience, our good works, have no ability to justify or save us from sin. But that, and he says, as the Old Testament prophets declared, only the Messiah through his death and resurrection could truly and eternally rescue us. Uh, he actually quotes from Habakkuk 1.5, uh, basically saying, don't make the same mistake your ancestors did when they were told the truth, but they chose to reject it. Uh, and unfortunately, that's exactly what we find happen soon. Now, I want to point out, so we don't kind of get lost in what we're talking about, uh, when we talk about having steadfast faith, we want to note that Paul's, the first part of this message, it emphasizes repentance before God and saving faith in Jesus Christ. So salvation is always the first step to being able to have steadfast faith because it's tied directly to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. But from there, there is, uh, from there, it's built on a hunger for God's word, a desire to hear it, to know it, to understand it better and deeper, and to be shaped by it. And this is actually what we find in the response of some of these people. So look at verses uh, 42 and 43. And the next Sabbath day, oh, I'm sorry, and when the Jews, verse 42, and when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, uh, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So we find Jews, we find Gentiles, and he also mentions these proselytes, basically Gentiles that were Jewish or became Jews. Um, but he basically is teaching them for the next week until the next Sabbath. So for some of them, you do see this hunger. In some of this group, you see hunger for God's word. They want to hear more. They want to learn more. Um, they're desiring and hungering for more truth, this group of basically Jews and Gentiles. But now, look at verses 44 to 49. And the next Sabbath day, about a week later, came also the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold, and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of unlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. So I do want to point out, it's not all of the Jews, but there is a group of Jews that are upset, which let's just be honest, is 
absolute insanity. <laughs> there are people, it says like the whole city. So to get real deep, it's a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people show up and they are ready to hear the truth. They're ready to be fed by Paul and Barnabas by this teaching of God's word. And this group of Jews are just angry. They begin mocking, arguing, and trying to silence Paul and Barnabas. But it's fascinating. Paul responds with more scripture. He's not just coming up with stuff. He starts quoting scripture at him. He actually quotes from Isaiah chapter 42, which clearly states that God's plan always included reaching Jews and Gentiles. That is to say that they should not have been shocked and certainly shouldn't have been offended by Paul's words or by the Gentiles' desire to hear truth. One commentator I read, he kind of made an interesting note. He said, this group of Bible, supposed Bible scholars, represent the same heart attitude of Jonah, who refused to preach truth to the Ninevites simply because he deemed them unworthy of it. Even when Jonah did go, Nineveh's humble response angered him, causing him to wish for death despite having just witnessed the salvation of an entire city for God's glory. I quote that because I want you to understand this is a very similar situation. They're upset and people are responding, and it really is sad. Now, as we look back at this critical passage in verses 46 through 48, we find two groups of people. Some are responding humbly to the gospel as a result of God's sovereign work in their heart. That's verse 48. And we find God holding men personally responsible for their rejection of Jesus Christ in verse 46. So we see both the wonder of God's sovereignty in the salvation of man and simultaneously the purity of God's justice in holding all men personally accountable for their choice to reject him. Now, as a result, again, these two groups, the believing group begins declaring God's truth throughout the entire region. You see that in verse 49. These people just start spreading the word, which is exciting. Uh, And again, it echoes some of these themes that we've touched on. Remember, step one, saving faith in Jesus Christ, repentance in their hearts and lives to him in verse 48. So salvation, and then step two, hunger for God's word and a passion for his work and for his kingdom. God sovereignly works in their hearts to want and to hear and know truth. They respond, and then that passion for his work, again in verse 49, they take that and they just start sharing it with people. Uh, So again, you see this response to Paul's sermon, the hunger for his word, the passion for God's work. As God worked in their hearts, Some demonstrated a hunger for God's word, passion for God's work, while sadly others rejected the gospel. And this hits a climax uh, as Paul and Barnabas are actually kicked out of the city. So look at verses 50 to 52. So the word of the Lord is spread out, is published through all the region, verse 49. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city, and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them out of their coasts. But they, Paul and Barnabas, shook off the dust of their feet against them, and came unto Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. Now to some, this may seem like a tragic loss. 
There's a huge work being done. God is working in the hearts of these people. People are responding in the city, and it is quickly shut down, and the two men leading this incredible movement are thrown out. And you'd think it would be like, ah, oh, bummer. <laughs> but that's not at all what happens. How do they respond? They shook the dust off their feet, and they continued through the Holy Spirit with joy. Now, this phrase, they shook the dust off their feet, it actually was uh, like a literal thing that they would do. Um, it was an act of contempt or condemnation that was frequently used by Jews when returning from Gentile regions. There's other ways that it was used, but to kind of give you a, a practical illustration of what this means, uh, the Jews would use it as a sense of saying, we don't even want to carry your heathen dirt into our holy land. So, Let's just, we're going to create a hypothetical situation. Uh, let's say a Jew is traveling outside of Israel for whatever reason, or actually they would do this if they went through Samaria as well. They'd go through, and it's kind of like, I remember uh, when I used to go on road trips with our parents, and you know, when you cross into like another state, I don't know if they do it on purpose, but you know, there's always like a bump, or I mean, it's probably not on purpose. But whenever we were driving or moving or traveling, you know, my parents would always be like, and we're in Virginia, and you know, so uh, there's a theoretical bump, you know, between Gentile whatever land and Jewish land. So a Jew would, as they, you know, went over the bump, ooh, they would literally shake the dust off. Like, you know, they would shake the dust off and then they would keep going into the Holy Land, okay? Um, but again, it was an act of, uh, really of contempt or of condemnation. And they were saying, I don't even want your, your heathen dirt, like the lowest low, I don't even want to bring that into Israel or Jerusalem. Now, uh, Paul and Barnabas, I want to point this out because this is important. Paul and Barnabas do not do this as an act of spite or anger. They're not like, you know, uh, this, is not, this is not done out of spite and anger, but recognize this is done to continue preaching to this group in light of the decision that they've just made. And I also want to note, this is also critical, um, this is exactly what Jesus told his disciples to do in Matthew 10. Remember, he sends the disciples out two by two, and what does he tell them in verses 14 and 15? Whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. As many commentators note, in Jewish culture there was no greater sign of condemnation. Paul and Barnabas do this to continue preaching to these, these men. They would have seen that and they would have known exactly what they were trying to communicate. They do this to preach, continue to preach, uh, to communicate that message of how severe God saw the decision that they had just made. So first they shake the dust off their feet. And then what happens? They move on to the next city filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Now, going back to what we started at, Steadfast faith, you know, perseverance in God's work. I don't want you to make the mistake of believing that the Holy Spirit just suddenly shows up at the end and makes everybody feel okay. It's not like they're happening, all this falls apart, and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's like, hey, I'm here, you're good. <laughs> don't make the mistake of thinking he just showed up suddenly at the end. God 
And this is why we work through the whole chapter. So you're like, you're talking about three or four verses and you just covered the whole chapter. Yes, because why? (laughs) Because the Holy Spirit's presence is clearly indicated throughout this entire uh, trip, throughout this entire journey. God has clearly been with these men the entire time. You see his presence highlighted all throughout this chapter and he continues to be with them as they go on to face even more severe persecution, but also again to reach people with the gospel preaching God's word and rejoicing in God's work among those, uh, those kind of cities that they visit after that. Now, we say all of that because we have to make this critical point as we're, we're getting into answering the question that we asked earlier. So if you haven't caught some of it, you really need to catch this. The steadfast nature of Paul's faith and the perseverance and the work that God called him to was not because of some self-motivated resilience. It wasn't because he had a personality-driven persistence or even that he just had some sort of like righteous grit. So when we look at the steadfast nature of Paul, it wasn't because of his personality. It wasn't because he was just resilient and self-motivated. And it wasn't because he just had some type of uh, Christian grit. It had everything to do with first, his humble repentance before God for salvation, and two, his complete submission to God's will for his life. As Paul grew passionately uh, and grew and and pursued a fuller understanding of Scripture, which obviously we see in the sermons that he preached, God worked in his life to drive him to seek the glory of Christ and to not seek his own. And this passion, again, you see it, the passion for God's word, the passion for God's will um, is really what defined his life and what defined his ministry. Just want to give you a couple of snippets of Paul, Paul's perspective on his own life. Uh, This is Philippians chapter 1. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, verses 20 and 21. Paul says this about his own life. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or what about in Galatians chapter 2, writing to the churches in Galatia, uh, these same churches actually that he's visiting, uh, he writes in Galatians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the hope which I now live in the flesh, I live by what? By the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Then you also look at Paul's final letter just before being martyred, 2 Timothy. He communicates the absolute necessity to be hungry for God's word, to allow truth to shape and dictate every aspect of our lives, to relentlessly pursue God's calling and glory in our service and ministry. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.16, a familiar verse, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing 
the word of truth. He tells Timothy in chapter 3, you know, continue in the things that you've learned, the things that you've known since you were a child. You've heard these things. You're assured of these things. And he said they're able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, these critical passages write, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And what does he say? It's profitable for every area of life in order to help you grow and mature into who God has called you to be, directly tied to scripture. And then, this is a great one as well. Uh, It's the last one, okay. But it's still, it's really powerful. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. You present your life a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is, by the way, your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, tying into Scripture, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's Paul's perspective on life. And we're going to circle back to this question. How was Paul, and so many other believers for that matter, uh, how were they able to have uh, or to be so steadfast for Christ in the face of heavy opposition and persecution? First, because Paul put his faith in Jesus Christ. He had a personal relationship with God, uh, and, and that obviously that fellowship and that relationship is step one. Uh, And then uh, you have, after salvation, that complete repentance, the complete confidence, faith, and dependence in God's work on the cross. Then you have that Paul's faith was so steadfast because he gave his life, like Romans 12 uh, 12 says, uh, as a living sacrifice to God, passionately pursuing his word and joyfully proclaiming truth every chance that he got. As Paul pursued God through Scripture and through obedience, God transformed his heart and his life using the presence of the Holy Spirit, or obviously using the gift that the Holy Spirit gave him. So this goes directly to the presence of the Holy Spirit, just to clarify that. Um, The presence of the Holy Spirit gifting and enabling him with persistent, steadfast faith, regardless of what life threw at him. Now, as we wrap up uh, in our conclusion A lot of that is great, and I think it's powerful. Obviously, it's Scripture, so it's powerful. Um, But we have to take that, right? And we have to turn it on ourselves because it's good to read that and almost like Desmond Doss. You know, you read it and you're like, woo! You know, I was going to scream, but I probably shouldn't just for the live streamers. (laughs) Yeah! Uh, There's a sense of it that's, that's invigorating, but again, we have to step back and take those principles and look at our own lives. So the question really becomes, are we passionate and dedicated to searching and knowing God the way like men, uh, the way uh, that men like Paul and others were? And I want to point this out. This was not just an intellectual head knowledge, but it was a passionate pursuit of God through his word, through obedience and submission to his will. That produced a changed and submitted life to the word of God, to its authority, to God's authority and passion for his work in this world. If you or if your knowledge of scripture never produces growth in a transformed life, to put it simply, you should be concerned. In fact, Paul touches on this in 1 Corinthians 3. Do you know the church in Corinth, uh, to summarize, they had a lot of problems, okay? But 
when he's writing to the church in Corinth in chapter 3, uh, to just summarize a lot of what he says, he says, I have, to, I have to talk to you like carnal people. I can't talk to you like spirit-filled people because you're babies. You are infants in Christ. He says, I have fed you with milk and not with meat because you can't handle it, and you still can't handle it. And he's trying to highlight that even though you're saved, you're still babies in Christ like the day you accepted him. Again, his point is, you haven't grown, you haven't changed, and you haven't been transformed by the Holy Spirit, by Christ. Of all the problems that were going on in Corinth, do you know what the root problem was? If you study 1 Corinthians, what it comes down to, Despite growing their knowledge, they never grew in their walk with God. Their lives were not influenced daily by the presence of the Holy Spirit, and it showed in the sin in their lives and in the sin within their church. So, what about having a steadfast faith through the Holy Spirit? It is a constant hunger for God's Word and allowing its truth to infiltrate you, to seep into every crack every corner and every crevice of your heart, your habits, your hobbies, your relationships, your careers, everything. No area of our lives should be untouched by our relationship with Jesus Christ and the authority of his word. In his book, A Mind for God, James Emery White said this, Our very transformation into the image of Christ is dependent on whether our hearts and minds are engaged in a process, a never-ending process, of renewal in light of Christ. Our passion is not for academic respectability, but for faithfulness to the commands of Jesus Christ. Being transformed by the Holy Spirit, and this is important, it is first and foremost a matter of love. Being in love with God and being in love with the truth of his word. Paul's love for God was manifested in his love for God's word. You see that in in his preaching and a deep knowledge and understanding of scripture that pointed him to Christ. That faith, that relationship with God was the foundation for everything that he did and everything that he was. And we ask the question, can the same be said about you? Can the same be said about me? Now, obviously, that fire was a work of the Holy Spirit. Would you ever think about where Paul witnessed it the first time? It was likely where we first met Paul at the death of Stephen. The first martyr in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is faced with a lose-lose situation. After being falsely accused of blasphemy, a crime that demanded execution, he is asked to either accept or reject the charges. If he rejects the charges, he'll be accused of lying because they had witnesses. (laughs) So if he rejects the charges, he's accused of lying and then executed for lying and blasphemy. But if he accepts the charges, he's executed for blasphemy. So what what does Stephen do? What seems like a hopeless situation to us was nothing less than an opportunity to proclaim the glory and magnificence of his personal Savior, Jesus Christ. Standing in front of the crowd that would soon murder him, including Paul, by the way, Stephen preaches what some scholars have called the greatest sermon preached by a man outside of Jesus himself. Stephen's life magnified magnified the name of Jesus. A God's glory meant everything to him. So when faced with death, the Holy Spirit enabled Stephen to boldly proclaim Christ to his executioners. Now, Paul's a great example. Stephen's a great example. But where did it come from? That's the question. When you look at Christ... 
you look what he endured during his life and his ministry, we immediately recognize why Acts, Scripture, is pointing us to the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, as a root of this. You look at Christ and you see nothing less than steadfast faith for God's glory, for truth, and it can only come through him. So again, briefly looking at Christ, while being betrayed, what is he doing? He's washing Judas' feet while he's like already planned to betray him. Then he's arrested, abandoned, falsely accused, blasphemed, beaten, cursed, mocked, and yet while being crucified, dying on the cross, what does he do? He gives hope to a dying man next to him. He never lost sight of the mission, even when he was doing it. He never lost sight of the truth of Scripture and the truth of why he had come. That faith doesn't come from Stephen. It doesn't come from Paul. It comes from Jesus Christ. So we talk about this salvation as the first step. It is the first step because you can't have steadfast faith if you don't have Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit enables that in us, and we see it so powerfully in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Having faith that's steadfast is not about, and again, this is important, having steadfast faith is not about possessing some kind of Christian grit. It is solely about surrendering all to Christ, passionately pursuing God's word, and being committed to a life of humble obedience that magnifies his glory and not ours. It all comes down to just simply loving and chasing after God every single day. No matter how you feel, no matter what hardship you face in life that's staring you down, rest in the Holy Spirit and never surrender your passion for God's glory and never cease in your humble pursuit of Christ through God's word. I want to say this before I close. I understand that there are times in our life where our faith fumbles. Let's just be honest. There are times, whether it's through a circumstance or uh, depression, like whatever it is, there are times in our life where our faith fumbles. But I think this is what makes that so powerful. Even in our darkest hours, we cannot take our eyes off of Christ, even if we're not out of it, right? Psalm 23 says, God walks us with us through the valley of the shadow of death. He's with us. So even in our darkest hours, we cannot take our eyes off Christ, and we cannot ever surrender our pursuit of God himself. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love you so much. And we're so thankful for the testimony of, of faithful men, God, the witnesses, the, the host of witnesses that you've laid behind us. But more than that, Lord, we're just so grateful for you, um, for who you are, and, and really what you've done on our behalf, something that without it, we could have no hope. And not just hope for eternity, Lord, but hope to have a faith in this life that magnifies and glorifies you. I pray that you would challenge me, that you would challenge each of us, to strive to have a faith that represents uh, you well, that, that makes us an ambassador to you and to all, or for you, to everyone around us in our lives. We love you. Help us to keep our eyes on you, even in the darkest of times, to trust you, to love you, and to chase you uh, no matter what. We love you so much, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.